Blog Talk Radio. When the opponent expands, I contract. When he contracts, I expand. And when there is an opportunity, I do not hit. It hits all by itself. Now, you must remember the enemy has only images and illusions behind which he hides his true motives. Destroy the image and it will break the enemy. The it. You're traveling to another radio show. A broadcast not only of sight and sound, but of mind, mind. A journey into the wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination. imagination. That's the on-air sign up ahead. Your next stop, Afro Nerd Radio. With your guides, Dee Bird, Captain Kirk, and on Grindhouse Saturdays, the uncanny Daryl D. Mind Expansion Engaged. funky, fiery edition of Afternoon Radio. Uh, actually, this is the Grindhouse mashup edition of Afternoon Radio, part of the ultimate machinery. We're, we are expecting Dr. Sheena Howard, um, educator, writer, and I would assume self-professed comic book geek or nerd. Um, I say that affectionately, of course. She has a book that we're going to unpack, she's going to unpack for us, Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation. Now, I downloaded this book quite some time ago, but um, her people reached out, and um, her, her scholarship is in line with what we want to do as far as the promotion of comic book culture from a black perspective. So she's going to really delve deep with her book and explain it to us and uh, definitely pick it up. We'll put a link to Amazon in our chat room, so definitely pick up the book. It's an excellent read. So before we get into the discourse, you know what we have to do. We've got to go into a groove, you know, part of the component of the Afro-Nerd machine. We deal with urban alternative groove, music, black rock and roll, psychedelic soul, Afro-punk. So without further ado, let's go to a quick groove. Michelle Indege Ocello, God, Fear, Money, classic groove. We'll be right back. Let's groove. Easy. 
I was way down for the revolution. Till I found out I was contingent upon some corporate sponsorship. And if Jesus was alive today, he'd be incarcerated with the rest of the brothers. But, uh, that would have a great apartment on the Upper East Side. Be a guest DJ of Total Request Live.
comic books as a serious medium and then go deeper with race. Um, The Ford was written in this book by another party to this to this enterprise, someone that we have great respect and fondness for, uh, William Professor William Foster, who we've had on the show before, he wrote the forward, forward for this book. Um, and we got to get him back on a game. We seem to always see him, Captain, undoubtedly at the Schomburg Museum, you know, at the, at the top of the year, I would assume 2016. They're, they're always seem to be late. <laughs> it seems to be late with this thing. You never know if it's going to go down. But it, it becomes more and more popular. <laughs> well, you know, it's true. Uh, we didn't know what was happening at the last minute. No, we weren't even sure if there was going to be one Comic-Con, black Comic-Con. There ended up being two, West Coast, East Coast. So I'm assuming there's going to be one again. And undoubtedly, we always see Dr. Forster there. And we joke because, you know, there's a, there's a comic book Bill Forster uh, Black Goliath, and he knows that, of course. He's, he knows this history. He's, he knows the history of, of comics. So she's in that same that same realm. So I, I'm definitely intrigued to see what she brings to the table. Also, we've got a lot other a lot of other things to discuss. Again, folks, the call-in number. Feel free to buzz on in as well. Six four six nine one five nine six two zero. Again, six four six nine one five ninety six twenty. Um. With a lot more to get get to as well uh, after the segment with Dr. Howard, um, Bleeding Cool, which is a pretty cool website. Bleeding Cool actually had an article, Captain. That the article references every conversation we've had on this show since its inception, <laughs> and the article de- deals with this. What I, I I've noticed it myself. I think I, I think the last Comic Con I spoke about this. Uh, New York Comic Con now. Um, there's a question from the Bleeding Cool website that's asking why black fans, black comic book fans, don't seem to frequent black comic creators outside and inside the comic book convention circuit. You have these tables, you have this, the product there, black product, and these Cats, male and female, are more interested in more interested in Spider-Man and Superman and all those other heroes. They don't seem to be interested in the black-created. We've been talking about this before. It's one thing to it's one thing to um, to get into this kind of stuff from a, from a mainstream perspective, but for whatever reason. When it when it has a black or brown face, these folks aren't interested. Captain, you have any thoughts about that, or? Well, there's a couple we talk of things about it all going the time. on. Yeah, there's a couple of things going on with that. The consciousness of the reader, the typical black reader, has to be raised. That's number one. You know, represent your own people, but also that consciousness is also controlled to a very large extent by the powers that be. You have a tendency to gravitate towards the images that are put out there, you know, and you try to snuggle up with these type of images. So you have a lot of that going on between, between the two. You have two things interacting synergistically to control the thought process of the individual. So when they see the black comic book creators, it's like, hey, yeah, it's okay, but, but let me get this Spider-Man. Let me get this, you know, Daredevil. 
Those comics are not going anywhere. You understand? They have a lot of money behind them and everything else. They're not going anywhere. There's nothing wrong with picking up with picking up Spider-Man and Daredevil. I like those comics too. But you have to be a little more conscious and see what's going on over here with these black comic book creators because some of the work is amazing. Let's call a spade a spade. They're just not on that platform. And that's what we have going on there, Sir Affleck. Yeah, um, you know, they're saying it out loud <laughs> in this article. Yeah. You know, and actually, I believe it, it, it caused uh, quite a firestorm on the Internet because, you know, just as if what we say about, you know, I hate to go there, but it's kind of the same thing. When you talk about or when you deconstruct Black Lives Matter, that causes issues. When you start to take out that dirty laundry and say, hey, you know, you, you're doing some things that's not correct. It causes a problem. So it was interesting to see several, actually several articles coming out from Bleeding Cool. And Bleeding Cool is a U.K. website, incidentally. And they were talking about black comic fans not really coming to the, coming to the fold. You know, I said this, uh, you, you remember the conversation I had last year, uh, you know, when you would mention that, first of all, some of these folks didn't even know there was such a thing as a Schomburg. The Schomburg Museum. Arturo Schomburg is an alien. I thought these were the geeks and the nerds that are supposed to to know some stuff. That's the part that frightened me. (laughs) Again, folks, we are waiting for Dr. Howard. I know she's aware of the meeting because I was tweeting tweeting out uh, the information, and she was responding earlier this morning. So... Uh, you'd be amazed at how quickly folks forget that uh, <laughs> there's there's a interview forthcoming. This is like ten o'clock in the morning, Captain. So um, let me see. Let let me go to another groove, Cap. If not, the show must go on. We will do what we do, and we'll have to reschedule. Uh, there's quite a few other interviewees I'd like to actually get into, but um, hey, it, it is what it is. We're professionals. We can go forward. It's not a big deal. All right, let's go to a quick groove. I'll see what I can do, if I can work some magic behind the scenes. Uh, Space is the place by pleasure. We'll be right back. Hold on.
space is the place by pleasure. Um, you know, Captain, we see some numbers here. I, I don't want to just assume that she, you know, the 914 number, let's try that. If not, then it is what it is. I, I tried making some contacts behind the scenes, but, uh, again, we'll have to reschedule, but uh, I'm not exactly sure. Let me just check. This is not professional, but I, I have no choice. 914, is this Dr. Howard? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've been on the call okay. since 610. <laughs> I, I do. Show. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, That's okay. What happened was nor, normally there's a button that you would push that that highlights you wanting to speak. So I, I gotcha. had no idea. Some folks, a lot of our listeners, you know, they just listen. Anyway. Right. <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, we appreciate you coming through. And sure. uh, I'm, I'm excited about your book. Thank you. And, I appreciate uh, it. Let me give you your, your applause here to clean this up. <laughs> All right. Uh, your book is – you have several books. You're quite prolific. But Thank you. But this book, Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation, for uh, someone who calls himself an Afro-nerd. Uh, I downloaded <laughs> this book quite some time ago, so, you, you know, right on time. Uh, Good. Tell us about – Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're an Eisner Award winner from last year. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. But tell us a little bit about your 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 backstory with this culture and mm-hmm. the impetus and the impetus behind this particular book. Sure. Um, well, I think part of the story is that you know I, I'm not a lifelong um, comics fan. I think a lot of the people that I meet, especially the artists at comic conventions and, and fans, um, you know, have been reading comics since they were young. And I think for a female, it's interesting that I was never introduced to comics throughout um, my childhood. It just so happened that when I got a little bit older, around around graduate school, I was interested in the boondocks because it spoke about current issues in a political way. Um, and so that was really my introduction into the comics um, industry from a fan perspective. And then that led me to doing research on the boondocks for my um, dissertation at Howard University, which then led to the production of the book Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation. Um, so you you were interested in Magruder's work. Yeah. Did you have any desire to go beyond that? To go to go back beyond Magruder? Well, yeah, that was, that was part of, of right. Um, was, so from there, where did you go beyond that? Right from there, I was I was specifically interested in comic strips. I guess since that was my you know introduction, like my introduction wasn't superheroes. A lot of people are getting um, connected to comics because of the movies and the superheroes that we're seeing. So my introduction was comic strips. So I stayed um, in that lane and started to look at the history of black comic strips. Um, and I was really fascinated because when we talk about you know like the 1950s and the 1960s, we always hear about the preacher and speakers and the black church. Um, you know, commenting and critiquing uh, white supremacy and racism during that time. So I was really interested in what comics were saying during that time um, to challenge some of the uh, racist representations of black people. Um, So, yeah, I traced the history all the way from around the 1930s up, specifically looking at black comic strips. Um, Captain, I'm sure you have some some questions for our, our guest. Captain Kirk, again, 
Dr. Howard, we keep in theme with the, the whole blurred thing. Captain. <laughs> How's it going, Dr. Howard? Good. Thank you. All right. I want you to talk a little bit about, and remember, I want you to feel comfortable here. The floor is yours. Right. Cultural gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Just expound upon that for me, please, in respect to dealing with comics. Sure. Um, so basically, cultural gatekeeping in the book, we're talking about it really from a creator's perspective. So all of the layers that an artist is going to have through in order to get their product um, published, produced, and then out to a mass market. So when we're talking about African-American artists specifically, there's this this cultural gatekeeping going on where a publisher is going to decide if your work is good enough to be published. I mean, and then a lot of times what happens is, is if they want to publish your work, uh, then they start making, you know, adjustments to your work. So sometimes it doesn't look the way that you intend it to look when it's marketed to a mass audience. So you can even think about um, the difference between the Boondock comic strip in the Boondocks animated cartoon. If anybody's familiar with both, like I am, you will see that um, the content is really, really, really different. And you can see that different people had a lot of hands in the animated cartoon series as opposed to the comic strip. And the product looks a little bit, looks a lot different. Do you do you think that, um, well, if you could explain that a little bit, because I, w- I was familiar with both, but I will say I became a mm-hmm. fan of Magruder's through the animated effort. But it mm-hmm. appears that it was always kind of known that his bite was taken away a, a bit with the mm-hmm. with the animated. What, what were your thoughts about that? I mean, uh, as an example, yeah. comparing the comic strip and the animated part of it, I think even one of the right. characters is even missing. Did, didn't he have like a friend that was also that they didn't yes, write Caesar. into the yep. Huey, mm-hmm. Huey, right? Yeah. Well, so when I think about the comic strip, it was relevant to what's going on now, you know, in that time period, late late 1990s. So he was talking about George Bush. He was talking about anthrax. He was talking about things that were actually going on that week. And I think the medium itself, the newspaper, did have have some constraints. So you never saw the N-word in the comic strip, which you heard, you know, a lot in the animated uh, television series. Um, It also wasn't as um, homophobic. So the animated television series was largely homophobic. Um, It also, um, it was sexist, but the comic strip was, was misogynistic. Uh, as well, um, but some of those differences are are very obvious, particularly the language and the extremity um, of some of the stereotypes that you see in the uh, animated show. You don't see in the comic strip as much. The comic strip is, is witty. It's it's witty. So, wh- what are your what are your thoughts about um, the current initiatives? Uh, I mean, right now, I, I I've been mm-hmm. collecting comics for a long time and. Um, I, I will say that I probably was one of those, um, although I've, I've always been race conscious, for some reason mm-hmm. when it came down to comic books, um, I think there was a period where I, I had blinders on until, mm-hmm. maybe the last ten, until maybe the last 10 or 15 years where I, I became more aware that, yeah, we need to start seeing more black folks in this thing and being more, like really pushing it. But now, mm-hmm. it, with all these initiatives, I'm sure you've heard about uh, Tainasi 
coats, his yes. helming Black Panther. That's a big thing. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it, so I mean, there's, there's, there seems to be so much. There's going to be an Asian Hulk. Uh, mm. a lot oh of wow! I didn't hear that on. one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, you know, I'm curious about how do you feel about this new wave of of um, kowtowing to diversity concerns? Like they they seem to really be pushing the agenda. Yeah, I think historically we see these waves of diversity. If you really think about it, like in the media in general, we see these waves of diversity, whether we're talking about the black exploitation era, whether we're talking about, you know, when the Cosby's came out, we see these waves. So we'll get a few years of, you know, um, African-American representation, and then it'll go back down. Then we'll get a few more years, and then it'll go back down. So right now um, we're in a high wave of uh, big corporations wanting to market to uh, diverse audiences. Now, will this wave last? Uh, we'll have to see. But right now they are capitalizing um, on this diversity wave. And, and it, is a, it is a cash cow, you know, it, it's selling. Um, but what I would like to see um, is for there to be some, you know, continuity and extension of just integrating people of color um, into these art forms, into the media, without us having, you know, to jump on the bandwagon when there's, there's a wave. Now, going back to your book, again, folks, pick up Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation by Dr. Sheena Howard. Um, you know, there's, there's quite, a few, quite a bit of discourse on the different archetypes, her, heroic archetypes. And um, I'm, I'm thinking, how do you think this plays – how does, how does, the, how does the, 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 the black person, male or female, fit in to those archetypes? How do you mm-hmm. – like, how, 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 how are we historically perceived – in comic books, and do you think things have changed 2015 versus, let's say, 1970? Mm-hmm. Well, things have definitely changed historically. I mean, we're talking about, you know, comic strips was really the first medium where black artists were publishing something. So we're thinking about, you know, the 20s and 30s when black artists could only publish in black newspapers, and they usually just did it, you know, on their, their spare time. Um, and then we see, you know, a little bit in the the 90s when there was a concerted effort, particularly in the Detroit newspaper, to say we need diversity in uh, comic strips. Today, with social media, um, a lot of different people are getting the opportunity to create comics. I mean, a lot of different people, regardless of color, uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, um, and people are using these production tools to create the kind of characters that we want to see. So they're not, no, they're not going to be um, produced by DC and Marvel, but there are other places that we can go to get the things that we want today. We just have to, uh, one, be willing to find them and seek them out, um, and two, to be open to consuming um, these diverse characters outside of DC and Marvel. I mean, I mean, obviously DC and Marvel, they have the money to push characters, you know, um, and we tend to consume the things that are popular or, or that are in our consciousness. Um, but there's some really talented um, artists um, who just don't have the, the money and the backing. But social media um, is a great place for, for artists to try to establish that fan base and hopefully, uh, you know, move up. I'm also thinking about um, Brandon Easton, who I met at the um, uh, Eisner Awards last year, who, who did Watson and Holmes, um, mm-hmm. basically a black character spinoff of uh, Sherlock Holmes, who's now 
um, writing um, for Agent, Agent a, Carter. A, yes, Agent Carter. Um, so building your own fan base and just, just sticking with it. Of course, you have to be talented, but a lot of talented people don't have the money behind them, um, you know, to to get past that cultural gatekeeping that, that I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. We've had Brandon on before, and uh, I, I I met him at uh, the last – I've known him for a couple of years now, back and forth. We've run into mm-hmm. each other. Um, yeah. But I, I'm thinking one of the things – and I'll just t- tell you just something that's just interesting. One of our listeners, uh, Q Storm from from the Podcast Juice, got to shout out podcastjuice.net. Uh, that's another okay. thing that's pretty cool is that you have a lot of different blurs with their own right. satellite things Absolutely. going on. If, if, there's mm-hmm. not, if there's not a black girl nerds, there's, mm-hmm. there's an Afro nerd, there's a fan bros, there's right, podcast right, and so forth. Right, right, uh, right. What we're doing here, just on this, as a side note, what we're doing here is we're trying to really concre- create a conglomerate of these blur these blurred centric uh, podcasts, so we can actually push product. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like I'm, I want mm-hmm. I want to support you and push your book, but right. even beyond that, David David Walker comes on our show and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we're very interested in just like in order for this this culture to thrive, we've got to push we got to push the product. People have to yes. buy it. So that is absolutely right. So I would I always talk about the way um, that people whether it be a comic convention, whether it be a network, place value on things. So if you have a comic and, you know, D.C. or, you know, San Diego Comic-Con places value on your work and you're plastered on the front of the website and they're talking about you, you're automatically getting fans. People are automatically knowing your work. If you go to a comic convention um, and you have this great work, but, you know, you're not marketed by that convention, people are not going to know to look for you. People are not going to know that your work is out there. And it doesn't really mean that the, the work that has the money behind it is the best work or the most talented artist. Um, it just means that somebody in a position of power or some corporation placed value on it. So I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. Using podcasts, using the production tools that are at our disposal to place value on things. Even when I look um, at how my um, – book has been received it's because it's because the the podcast world um you know saw value in it and pushed it a little bit uh, without that you know nobody's going to know about your work even if you're the most talented artist or, or you know have the best comic series out um and something i, I want to ask you also is that uh, what i was hinting at what i even mentioned uh q storm from podcast jews is that mm-hmm. uh he has a production company, a video production company, and he had worked on something for BET with MC Light, the uh, classic uh, hip-hop right. artist. And we've also had MC Light on our show, and I'm sure she does a lot of different shows, but he, he, he spoke to her and said, hey, you know, um, uh, you know we, 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 we heard you recently because you, are, you frequented one of our, one of my personal, speaking for Q-Storm, one of my personal shows, uh, Afro Nerd Radio, and she squinched up and said, "Afro Nerd." So she had forgotten. She, you know, where I'm, where I'm going with this. She had forgotten that she was on the show, which is okay. But the fact, right. but she, it was, it was, it was as if she had stepped in something mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the term Afro Nerd was used in her presence. Now, how do we get how do we get past this? Because there's one thing to talk about the history of comic books. Uh, especially black com- blacks in comics and the imagery and the representation and, and the inferences with these mm-hmm, characters. Mm-hmm. 
But it's another thing to even I'm even I'm more into into pushing the branding of a blurred or the branding of an Afro nerd. But when you have people who have this, they recoil. Right, black folks and white folks, but but even but but especially black people. Have you encountered right. this, and and how do you think we're able to to get beyond it? Yes, I've seen it. I think that you know sometimes when you have a movie or you have a comic and it's all black cast, I think for for some people, white or black or anything in between, it's an automatic turn off. I think that speaks to, you know, the history of our perception of African Americans. Um, but also I think when we're talking about that Afro piece or African American, I think a lot of young people today, um, and I'm sure you you've heard this in various different forms. Um, they're not connecting with the term Afro or African American. You know, they're having a very different orientation to even identity politics. Um, so those are some of the things that we have to consider. But I think that even when you're creating a product, you do have to consider um, the wave that we're in, the time period that we're in, the names and titles of your of your product make a difference. I think you do have to be um, aware or conscious um, of what people are going to be receptive to. I think I think there is a, a balance there um, that you need to take into consideration. Cap, do you have any thoughts on that? Maybe Dr. Howard is on to something. You know, we, we've all, we're very much aware of, like, we, we try to promote the term urban alternative, even with the music that we play. We're, mm -hmm. we're great supporters of the Black Rock Coalition and of Afropunk. Um, and, you know, you're right. If you use the term African or black in something, but I'm talking about our own people who are, yeah. I think it's more about nerd. There's, a, there's another N word that, we seem to be more uh, inclined to use if you get my drift, and I'm like, okay, there's a there's there's actually another word that's worse than nerd that some of some of us seem to be more comfortable with. Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. yeah, nerd, nerd, you know, Bill Gates is a nerd; he's a billionaire. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Zuckerberg is a billionaire. I don't. I I'm I'm going to be an Afro nerd because well, hell, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money to be made in nerd culture. And I don't see why black folks are recoiling from it, or some black mm -hmm. people. But, but Cap, what, do you, what are your thoughts about what Dr. Howard just stated, that you know, there may be something with um, racial identity in, in the millennial age, so to speak, millennials, and maybe not connecting with Afro-nerd, the Afro of the nerd part? All right, once again, listeners, you need to pick up Dr. Sheena Howard's book, Black Comics, Politics, Race, and Representation. Now, that being said, I definitely feel she's on to something. I also feel that we need a cultural shift. That's what, mm -hmm. we, you know, ultimately that we need in order to really push this. Within the culture, culture dictates also the consciousness of the people at the given time. So you need that to happen. And it all starts by doing things what we're doing right now, pushing her book. <laughs> so there you have it, you know. What were you surprised about in your research about uh, black comics, uh, black comic strips? What what kind of stuck out stood out for you in your research? I mean, I really was surprised that there 
there was no book for me to go to that just listed the history of black cartoonists. Like I, and maybe it was naive on my part, but you know, I was writing this book around 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, and I, you know, I was in the Howard university library. So there's going to be a book on African-Americans It's going to be there. So I thought I was just going to go um, and pick up a book that would say, you know, here are the, the first black, cartoonists that published, you know, in 1920s, 30s, 40s, and there was no book. Like, there was there was nothing. There were, you know, journal articles here and there and online references here and there, um, you know, um, that that stated, you know, this, this was the first comic strip artist or this was the first comic strip to come out, but there was no one-stop shop. Um, and that was really why I decided um, to go forward and write this book, um, like I said, I wasn't a lifelong comic fan, but in wanting to do this research, I was really just pissed off that there there weren't any references that I could use or go to. I really just felt like it was a injustice to the African American community um, that we weren't me- mentioned um, in a comprehensive way when we're talking about American comics. So that was the thing that was most surprising to me and then a little more specifically when I started to do my research on the boondocks comic strip I love the comic strip but I didn't realize how misogynistic the comic strip was and so that led me to go and do some research on some other um comic strips um to see um the representations of women specifically in the comics um so you know, the symbolic messages that we're reading in comics when they devalue women or devalue um, people because of their sexual orientation and other things, sometimes we don't even realize um, that we are internalizing those messages. Well, well, well uh, again, what, what did you see? I'm not, I'm not asking you to go into memory lane, but what, what did you see as an example <laughs> that devalued Mm-hmm. Um, women that we that we uh, someone as a comic book reader might not have might have glossed over. I, I'll, I'll say this one thing: right. um, when you think of a of a character, let's, let's talk about gender. Um, Wonder Woman, of mm-hmm. course, comes to mind. Mm-hmm. There's certain aspects of Wonder Woman that are quite groundbreaking as far as her creation. I think William Morris mm-hmm. created uh, Wonder Woman. And he was rather progressive for his time. I mean, you know, he lived with two women and that, that whole their, – their nature – I mean, his life could be put on HBO alone. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he created the, 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 um, uh, the lie detector machine. They, they, that's where you get the you – know, of course, the, the, the uh, golden lasso and all that stuff. But the fact that she was um, cl- clearly – didn't didn't fit the archetype for a woman in 1940, and they still mm-hmm. allowed that. Wouldn't you say that that was kind of groundbreaking? Uh, you know, I don't yes. see her. I don't yes. perceive her as like. Uh, I thought she was for 1940. That was pretty progressive. But what did you mm-hmm. see that I'm, I might have well, missed yeah. as far as that could be the, 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 crea- the creation? The creation of a female superhero in the 1940s is step number one. So yes, it's groundbreaking because there are not any other female um, comic characters or very, very, very little with their own titles. So that's only step number one. So after we get past step number one, then we have to have a conversation about what we're seeing, what it's representing, and it's even more important when there's only one. And so if women or girls are buying this 
comic, let's say in the 1940s with Wonder Woman, um, they might be buying it and they might be enjoying it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely happy with the way that the female is being represented. And I don't have a problem with um, female superheroes being sexy, wearing high heels. Um, I just want to see a variety of representations, whether we're talking about African-Americans or whether we're talking about gender or they're talking about Asian-Americans. When you only have one of something or we only have a handful of something, the representation becomes super important because there's only a limited number of characters out there. Well, what are your, what are your thoughts about, um, well, yeah, yeah, these comic, well, I guess I'm focused on the superhero thing, but I mean we can go. We, mm-hmm. we can even go beyond that. Like a company like Image, Image mm-hmm. has come out now. It's perhaps the, the third level now. You know, we, we talk about yeah. DC and Marvel, but you have Dark Horse. You have a lot of different books. Uh, Milestone is coming back into the fold. We'll yeah. see what they bring to the table. But we, we are seeing other companies. I don't even know if, if you could even consider Image a independent book anymore. Um, right. It's pretty much right under right there under DC and Marvel. But these other comic book companies, uh, wouldn't wouldn't you say that they might be exploring these other roles for uh, diversity? I mean, definitely. We are seeing I mean, movement. To, yeah, I mean More today, so ever, today, I right? Yeah, today, right now. I think I actually think that you know where we are um, is pretty good. Of course, there's always work to do, but I think with some of these independent um, comic companies that are, you know, making their way up and getting a little more traction, you can go somewhere now um, and find a representation that you appreciate, whether it be a superhero or, or a web series or a web comic or a graphic novel, you can go somewhere and find something that you appreciate outside of the mainstream um, comic publishing companies because they're owned by you know the big six uh, you know media con- conglomerates. Um, so I think right now I-, I actually think our comics are doing fine. Um, yes, we would like to push the mainstream comic companies to do better, but of course we know historically we we can't depend on that. Well, yeah, I have I'll, a question. I'll say... Okay, Cat. All right, it's a nerd geek question. Nerds and geeks sometimes, they can be like prison lifers, you know, because they consider mm-hmm. themselves lifers, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes they can react, you know, like a bit standoffish to people that are just getting involved in their culture mm-hmm. from their standpoint. I would like you to tell us, the audience, your experiences with those type of people, if you even encountered it at all. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that question. Uh, I really appreciate that question because I I do want to point out um, that, you know, like we've been talking about in this interview, you know, I wrote this book, but I'm not, you know, a diehard fan, Um, a lifelong fan, particularly the superheroes, which most people tend to to really focus on. But the comics industry um, has been great. They've been very accepting, very welcoming. Even when I wrote the book, you know, they the, the contributors, you know, John Jennings, who did the cover, they didn't know me from Adam. I, you know, I emailed them randomly. Hey, I'm writing this book. I would love for you to participate. You know, people like William Foster, Nancy Goldstein, um, and they were willing to participate. So I think that says a lot about the comics culture and how accepting um, they've been, and the, I've I've been um, 
very pleased um, with the response, knowing that, you know, um, like you said, Nick and nerd and geek culture, um, they're diehard, you know, fans. Um, so, yeah, it's been great. Okay. All right. Um. Just one more question. We're going to end up bringing sure. you back. We have we have other segments, but I definitely uh, I'm, I'm intrigued about this book and and um, you know I, again as the captain said, I, matter of fact, there's a link to our audience. Uh, we're to, and to the audience. We're speaking to Dr. Sheena Howard, um, and the link to your book, Black Comics, Politics, Race, Representation. Um, my thoughts really with where we are now. I mean, we're seeing we are seeing more representation. I think we need an infrastructure. What are mm. your, your thoughts on – because uh, Joseph Illich of the mission mm-hmm. and also formerly of – I mean, he's a veteran in the comic book industry. He worked with DC. And he's been on the show as well. Um, mm-hmm. He has a piece from the mission, and he's lamenting about black women not being included in a mm-hmm. Yahoo highlight reel. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, I believe the Yahoo news piece was called Rise of the Female Superhero. And he was lamenting that they went through this whole thing of of women arriving in this industry, uh, you know, behind the scenes. But no black women were involved in this thing. They weren't represented. Women just weren't there. Black women were not there. And I guess I'm just kind of beyond that now because I'm not expecting mainstream folk to really get black women. Exactly. (laughs) And I don't know – and honestly – it might be better for us to have our own infrastructure where we can get all this money. But mm-hmm. to constantly expect white folks to kind of get you or to represent your interests, at some point it even sounds like an oxymoron. So I kind of want you to, right. to give, us, give us your thoughts about maybe it's not, not really about DC and Marvel and, and you know, to constantly beg these people to let us in right. the door. Why not create our own door? What are your thoughts about that? Exactly. I agree with you 100%. I mean, it's only but so many years that we're going to be asking the same companies, you know, to do um, things a little bit differently, to hire us as writers, to hire us as artists. Um, eventually, you're going to have to say, I'm going to create my own stuff. And I agree with you, we need a need an in- infrastructure. I'm thinking about, you know, Milestone Media, which is um, supposed to be, um, you know, coming back. Um but I also think for for um, African American artists, if you are going to make any headway, um, if your comic or product is going to blow up, it has to cross over. It cannot just appeal to African Americans. That somewhere along the line, it has to appeal to the, to a mass audience. That doesn't mean that you can't talk about you know black issues. I mean, the Boondocks did it, but it had crossover appeal. And I think that's very, very important. That, I think that's a very important um, point to understand. Yeah, I think that's going to be difficult, though. <laughs> for whatever reason, um, for whatever reason, Boondocks crossed over and was unapologetically black. But how do you do that with with well, you know in the in the general? Yeah, a lot of it is timing. I mean, like I said, if you if you read my book, one of the things I talk about is there was a concerted effort around the time that Boondocks came out to um, feature more black cartoonists. Like, that was a concerted effort from a newspaper um, in Detroit. Um, so a lot of it is timing. 
Um, but a lot of it too is either your product is going to sell to a mainstream audience or it's not. I mean, there is some potential to, you know, just market um, to a, a small niche of the community. But I think if you want to make it to the next level, the product has to, has, has to have crossover appeal. And I don't think that you necessarily have to um, water it down. But, I mean, that's the difference between, you know, some people will make it and some people won't. That's just the, the nature of the beast. Um, and then that is that factor that you have to have eventually money behind it or make the right connections. That's very important too. Um, but yeah. Are you going to, it's not going to be comments, easy. <laughs> one last, I said it was the last, what, this is the last question. Are, are you going to sure. go to uh, New York comic con? Are you, are you excited? Uh, about that? No, I've been, I've been, I've been trying to get to New York comic con. I've been trying to get a table at New York comic con. Um, Actually, I have to, you know, spread my conventions out a little bit because they, they tend to get really expensive. So that's one that I I will make it to um, in the next few years, but I will not uh, be there this month. Oh, just too bad. Yeah, uh, I just came so- from the Detroit Comic Convention, MeccaCon. Um, so. Well, hopefully we'll see you at the Schomburg one. Next year, that's the if, well. If, if that comes about, I'm I'm assuming that they will be. Uh, the black sure, Republican. sure, sure. Yeah, I'll Doctor, keep an eye out for it. Doctor Howard, we appreciate you coming through. We 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 will continue to push your your works. Um, keep pushing, and um, I think that uh, we, we're going to see a renaissance. So uh, we just got to get that infrastructure. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think I think we're on the verge right now. I think so too. Uh, thank you very much for stopping by. We'll try to keep in touch behind the scenes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks. <laughs> Dr. Sheena Howard, definitely pick up her book. There's a link to her book via Amazon, uh, Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation. Cat, uh, let's go to a groove. When we get back, yes, we've got a whole lot more show to go through. Um, for the listening audience, the call-in number, as always, forevermore, 646-915-9620. Again, 646-915-9620. The uncanny Daryl B. is persona non grata, and I say that uh, affectionately. He is has a, a prior engagement, but there will be a posting of his blog musings at afronerd.com coming up after the show, so t- check that out. Um, let's go to a groove. This is Saul Williams, List of Demands. Give me about two minutes. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
suffering, echinacea buffering. We aim to remember what we choose to forget. God's sister baby, and her diaper is wet. Call the police, I'm strapped to the teeth, and live on the music got you every belief. Call up the law, I'm sick to the draw, a lot of tea when there's a season, call up a brawl. Call on the night, cause it's about to go pow. I'm standing on the set, all the dust in the dime. Call up the truth, because I'm about to break loose. We're taking that concern, I'm breaking out of my suit. I got a list of demands, written on the palm of my hands. I'm on my system, you got no right there. Mighty Saul Williams, also a veteran of Afropunk, List of Demands. Folks, this is the Grindhouse mashup edition of Afro Nerd Radio featuring the the Debert, a.k.a. Afro Nerd. I was going to say the uncanny Darrell B., but he is not here. He'll be back next week. And, of course, Captain Kirk. Um, Cap, I want to talk about this article. We were kind of – it's kind of looming in the background of the conversation we had with Dr. Howard. There's a piece. There's actually several pieces from Bleeding Cool. And, again, Bleeding Cool is an excellent website, comic book, geek-oriented fan site. Uh, interestingly enough, out of the U.K. Because, uh, of course, Bleeding Cool is like, you know, a U.K. phrase. You know, we don't really say bleeding too much in, uh, in the Americas. But, anyway, uh, two pieces, both on a kind of an expose on why black fans – are not patronizing black creators at these Comic Cons. So it started from a September 27th piece. Let me put this in the chat room so we can get the folks on folks aware of this thing. Um, okay, here we go. There's a link to the initial piece, and again, this is from Bleeding Cool, and it's something that is coming from Larry Stroman. Now, Mr. Stroman is better known for his work with X Factor. Dark Stars, and I believe he's the co-creator of Tribe. So he's, this is what he says. I'm going to read a little bit from the, the piece, and then we'll unpack. Uh, Larry Stroman on when black fans avoid black creators at Comic-Con. Larry Stroman, well, I went through his bio. He says, for all of you black people who go to comic shows, comic cons, events at comic stores, who break your necks to avoid every black creator <laughs> working on an independent – Captain, yeah, I'm here. It sounds, okay. it sounds crazy. It just sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. Why well, are you sick of it? For all yeah. you black people who go to comic shows, comic cons, events at comic stores, who break your necks to avoid every black creator working on an independent or mainstream book, you should be ashamed of yourselves. It seemed to strike a nerve. Uh, Art Belfield, preach. It happens to me all the time. Kendu Cheek, I second that. Chris Johnson, I want to know what the reasoning is, too. Are we too threatening or what? Keith Morrell, I'm not going to lie. That happened to me a lot that past two days at my booth. But it's all good. I'm still having a lot of fun and meeting a lot of amazing artists and people. Uh, 
though some fans experience the problem in the other direction. Uh, CM Tally, to all the black creators I've never seen at any Comic-Con, where the hell are you? Hmm. Uh, B. Alex Thompson, I'm usually at most Southern California shows and some in the extended California and uh, Nevada areas, WonderCon, Long Beach, Comic Comic Expo, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Kieran Silva says, any social media is great. We need to change the perception that black-created comic... Uh, okay, where's this thing move? Black-created comic books aren't as relatable or as interesting as other mainstream books. Okay, so he's saying that there's a, a perception that we need to change. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt Pitt, who was, on our, who was on our show, he says, a close colleague once said that black people who behave as Larry Stroman described are inclined to eat from the table of those who care less about them but will continue to take their money hand over fist. It's a weak position to be in. I've never been among that number. I prefer to support my, my people first. That's the great Mr. Pitt. Um, listen, I spoke about this. You can go to the archives. Uh, about the, of the last Comic-Con, the last New York Comic-Con, October of 2014, I distinctly remember having conversations with quite a few blurds and telling them, hey, you know, this is cool what's happening at New York Comic Con, but are you aware of the Schomburg Comic Con coming up in just a few months? And some folks looked at me and said, what's a Schomburg? Which is frightening. And other folks were, oh, wow, I, we're doing that? I mean, the, the type of black consciousness that you're looking for, I, I, I was a little perturbed. And then there were others who did have that consciousness, consciousness, and they they were wondering what the hell is going on. So you you have a few different experiences, even among black folk at these mainstream conventions, where you have politicized black people wondering what's going on, and you have black folks that are just there to, just there to see Spider Man, and they're completely clueless. So what what are your thoughts about this this anger now coming from black creators? saying, hey, this, this is not right. I do, I will say this, I was very, especially very conscious at New York Comic Con that when I, went, I would go to black, black booths and I was very much into buying their products. You had black science fiction writers, not just comic books, black science fiction writers, you had all kinds of things. I distinctly remember there was an independent black um, movie company there. And they had, he had fine women of varied ethnicities, all women of color, that were uh, heroines in these productions. But this is an independent, minority-owned, sci-fi, action movie, comic book company, video company. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know whether, I, you know, listen, I was interested. I mean, the women alone had me come into the booth. But we're not, we're not on top of this like we should be. Not like I think we should be. What do you think? What are your thoughts about the the, the um, you know the passion coming out from this article? Well, the passion is great. That's excellent. You know, from out of passion, things begin to move. Furniture begins to move. You know, we're dealing with also self hate. You know, these people walk am I looking? You know, you're dealing with self hate because you see the mirror reflection of yourself now. You know, and there's a lot, and we know. You know, Sergio talks about this all the time. You yourself talk about it 
all the time other listeners talk about it, the self-hate that's in the black community. You go by, you see that individual, the black creator, in the struggle, trying to come up. You see a reflection of yourself a lot of times. You don't want to see that, a lot of these individuals, because of the self-hate. The more conscious person acknowledges the self-hate that we have in the community and says, okay, let me check out what's going on over here. You know what? Some of these guys are really talented. Let me get this. Let me get that. Let me read into this. Let me read into that. And that's also too part of upbringing, cultural upbringing, you know, and it takes time to develop that, you know, just like it took time to, in order for us to be mentally destroyed. This didn't happen right away. So, you, you know, we have to start going the other way. So going back with the article, I think the article is very profound. We need to do that more, you know, screaming to the mountaintops. And then furniture begins to move a little bit. And then we can move it a little bit more. Then we can move it a little bit more. Because the truth. It's the truth. You know, people just don't know what's going on. It does need to be on a higher platform, though. All right? Because some people just don't know. You know? You have to look for a lot of these things. You yourself, you was raised in a household. Again, the father in the household. Something that we cannot talk about. Again, the father in the household. Something you cannot talk about. Where your father instilled, decanted certain things into your awareness, into your consciousness, that you know how to move when you go out here. Father's not there. Everything is Spider-Man. That's part of it now. Everything becomes Spider-Man, Daredevil, Thor, you know. There you go. That's all. Back over to you, Alfred. You know something else, Cap, um, and this is involving your predecessor, Iron Man, Mr. Stark. You had a conversation with him a few days ago. And he said something. He's always telling me something that's somewhat frightening about what's happening around us. Um, when Dr. Howard referenced the, you know, when I talked about MC Light recoiling, and this is coming from our friend Q Storm, when she recoiled, acted a little wincy about having been on a show called Afro Nerd, as if as if Afro Nerd is the worst thing. Just the terminology is is at issue for some some black people. To be able to get around that is is a problem. I mean, it's it's Bill Gates is not going word, to Afro nerd. <laughs> well, yeah, like yeah, well, yeah. Word, I mean, <laughs> you know, um, the nerd culture is a multi-billion-dollar culture, and why black folks don't want to be connected with that sounds me that it, that to this day to to Recoil at the word is is beyond the pale, but that's not the at issue. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm thinking of is, you know, these folks that are coming in with the, the with these attitudes about um, comic cons and and not wanting to to um, participate in this thing. When I was thinking about my conversation with Iron Man, and that Doctor Howard had just talked about the Afro part of it, and that. The, the millennials may not want to be connected with something that's black and nerdy, or, or they're not connecting with a, a black cultural consciousness. And yet, we see Black Lives Matter, and if we're if we're led to believe that what's going on is going on, that you need to be as you need to be as black as you were in 1960 and 2015. That's what we're. So there's a lot of things going up, going up against each other. Mm-hmm. But when I spoke to Iron Man, he had said, as an administrator in the um, 
Long Island school system, that he walked in walked in on a class to observe, uh, you know, what was going on in the classroom, and it was some kind of some kind of discussion on Black history or, or or such, and this was an eighth grade class, and one I guess the subject the subject of lynching came up, or maybe the teacher had made reference to the term lynching. Eighth grade class, so you're talking about 13 year olds. And one of the students who was African American put his hand up and said, Excuse me, Miss So and so, what does lynching mean? Wow. So, yes, yes. So, of course, the Iron Man had to walk out because <laughs> he, he couldn't handle that. That uh, he remembers when when we were 13. We knew we knew lynching pretty well. We could actually give you a book report on lynching without doing too much research. We just knew we just knew what lynching was. But we've gotten to the point now where you have parents raising black children, and they don't seem to have this knowledge. I mean, at thirteen, you can't really excuse that excuse that away. How do you know? How do you not know lynching? But then again, you know when they inquired. As an indirect kind of thing, it, it, it was indirect when Little Wayne made reference to Emmett Till, disparaging Emmett, Emmett Till on wax. That's when people had to do the, the millennials had to do the research and find out, oh, that's who Emmett Till was. And Emmett Till was many decades before our time, but we still knew who Emmett Till was. I'm, I think we're going through a frightening period where you actually have black folks that are just not conscious. So maybe she was on to something about, Dr. Howard I'm talking about, uh, with uh, just not having black consciousness. Is that, is that what's happening here? I mean, re- really not having black consciousness? I'm having a difficult time wanting to believe that, with millennials specifically. In in the wake of Black Lives Matter, mind you, how do you not have black consciousness in the wake of a Black Lives Matter movement? How does that happen exactly? Listen, I've also seen it with older people too. So, <laughs> you know, I've I've seen it, and I'm like, this person here doesn't know what's going on. Totally amazing. Why is this? Why are they doing that? Why are they doing this? Uh, hello, hello. Pay attention. Look in your history. This this is how these things work. <laughs> it's a haze right now. We have a haze. But someone had said to me some years ago, about ten years ago, he says, anytime the powers that be decide to turn the hoses on you directly, that's when you realize how to figure things out. If they do it. Covertly, everything gets lost. And like you start messing up yourself and everything else. But if they turn those hoses on us, and let's throw some Doberman pictures in there too, or should I say German Shepherds? Better. Throw that on you. You know exactly what's going on then. You get hurried into a reality where you have no choice but to figure it out. That was said to me some years ago. You know? And that seems like where we are right now. That's where we are. Well, wow! <laughs> it's not, it, it, that's very—that's not a good look. It's not a good yeah. look. 
Um, I want to I want to um, mention another piece that's connected to the bleeding cool piece, and then we'll move along. I do want to talk about some of the the expectations and highlights in comicdom. Uh, one being damage controls the TV. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But um, you know, there's a second piece that came in after this expose by these these um, grumbling, and I say that in a you know not in a pejorative way, grumbling black creators about what the hell is going on with black folk. Uh, there's another piece here written by Alex Thompson. Now, I want to read this for a moment, and then we're going to move along. Uh, the piece also mentions Brandon Easton, our friend Brandon. Uh, so a certain bleeding cool expose has been making the rounds and creating quite a stir amongst the interwebs. Being affiliated with the bleeding cool family and the creators discussing the topic, I felt that there needed to be a lot more detail on this subject given as opposed to the simple touch points previously shown. I reached out to creators who were willing to go on record with their in-depth thoughts on the matter to possibly shed some light on this divisive subject and possibly make things better for the comics industry as a whole. Here are those thoughts along with the photos provided by the creators themselves. Brandon, Mr. Easton, we all know uh, now. Thankfully, we see him. He's, I, I'm definitely interested in seeing Agent Carter now that he's part of that team. Um, he says, Brandon Easton is a very busy man, but he had a few moments to recount an experience at WonderCon 2012 he had with Anthony Montgomery. Uh, you know Mr. Montgomery from the Star Trek Enterprise show, and also I believe he's the nephew of um, jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery. That's just a little bit of trivia there for, for the listening audience. Um, he, had a, he had with Matthew Montgomery in promoting Miles Away. Uh, while Brandon was used to the comic crowd, Anthony was used to a different, uh, and he says in, in parentheses, parenthetically, he says, better and more welcomed. So he says different experience as a guest at Star Trek-related conventions. So already, you know, he's coming from a Star Trek vibe where everybody is lovey, lovey, lovey. As the show progressed, Anthony began to notice something that Brandon already realized. While there was strong interest in the all-ages book, none of the black attendees would stop. What really stands out and affects the duo to this very day was when a little black boy stopped, checked out the book, and was excited about it. But upon bringing it to his parents, they quickly took him away from the book and booth. Uh, why would... Why, why would what would make black comic fans go out of their way to avoid black creators with black comic characters? How is this different from the television experience with something like Star Trek? Easton, be- Easton brought up a myriad of, ex- of reasons, one point being the people behind the material and, the shown, and shown in the material. For comic books, they're traditionally made by white men portraying the exploits of white male characters. In Star Trek... There are multicultural people of both genders and sexual orientations portraying the exploits of the same. Within comics, the visuals most black fans are inundated with affect what they follow or show interest in. Easton stated that black geeks tend to follow white geeks and are quick to show deferment to their tastes. It's a sort of inbred racism or colorism, sort of like an industry-wide paper bag test. Easton says that it seems like black seems like if black geeks at shows see a black person behind the table, especially with black characters on the book, they automatically expect it to be trash without giving it a second look. Wow. I'm going to leave it, leave it there. I'm going to actually put this second piece 
in the chat room, folks, so you can check it out for yourself. And we'll probably have to re- – well, listen, we always revisit this topic. This is an ongoing discussion, to be honest with you. Um, but my main thing is we're not going to survive unless we start to promote these IPs. These are intellectual properties, and, and we fail to re- – we fail to acknowledge that Daredevil, Spider-Man, the Hulk, Batman, these are ideas. They're multi-billion dollar ideas. And it's foolhardy to think that you can't have a black idea that's not worth millions, if not billions, of, do- idea, uh, of dollars. Uh, Q-Storm says something in the chat room, then we'll move along. Uh, I tried reading Montgomery's Miles Away. Uh, I tried to get him on the show. Yeah, we, we kind of went back and forth, but I couldn't get through it, to be honest. Well, I think, you know, I might have it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to revisit it. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to muddle through it because there are a lot of complicated books out there, Q, to be, respectfully, that, you know, Watchmen wasn't an easy read, but we got Watchmen. <laughs> At some point, Watchmen was difficult. A lot of things going on in Watchmen, but... In spite of his difficulty, there's going to be a Watchmen HBO TV series. So, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to go into this, obviously, more. All right. um, You know, the late, great Dwayne McDuffie, speaking of diversity, it really saddens me, Captain, that we were fortunate enough to interview this gentleman. He, He died relatively young, I believe at 48, 49 years of age. And to start to see that his work, and not, not just his work only, but also what he was a proponent of, seems to be coming to fruition. All these diversity initiatives, a Black Panther film, no less, all these things are coming in after this man has expired. You know, it's, I guess it's a melancholy kind of thing. But anyway... Specifically to one of his projects, very highly touted, um, beloved, Damage Control. There's discussions on this thing now that ABC may be picking this up as some kind of half-hour comedic series. Now, for those who may not know about Damage Control, essentially, essentially it's, a, it's a fictional construction business from Marvel that I mean, it's kind of been genius when you think about it because, you know, we're always talking about trying to channel, channel some kind of reality. Matter of fact, if you really, if you really think about it, Captain, one of, the, one of the critiques that I had of Man of Steel mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of, it, of Avengers 2 was all the destruction. Mm-hmm. What about all this destruction? It was so over the top. Who deals with this, with this stuff? So damage control... As, as created by McDuffie, uh, McDuffie and Ernie Cologne, and they essentially talk about uh, this company that specializes in, 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 in repairing all the, the damage that these heroes and villains, that, that they're responsible for in, in the Marvel Universe. So now we're going to see this as a ABC property. And I thought that, well, maybe this, this might be um, uh, John Ridley's you know, John Ridley of American Crime and also the scribe behind uh, 12 Years a Slave, he's, he's supposed to be connected to some unnamed Marvel Comics TV property. But 
this isn't even it. So there's so much Marvel stuff coming out, but I honestly I would not have thought that we would see a damage control TV series, and I guess it's going to be in line with everything else. I mean, it's, it's going to have to be connected to to the the silver screen as well as what what happens in in uh, Shield and, and even the the even the the, the um, spinoff series that's supposed to be coming out from that. What are your thoughts about McDuffie kind of coming into his own, which I guess is pretty much part of the course, but coming into his own after the after the man's death, and even the the prospects of a series that deals with insurance, <laughs> insurance and uh, construction companies dealing with, you know, damage, property damage claims, comedically. Well, a lot of things come to fruition at times after when people die. But as we, as we will always say, it's always better to have them here anyway. <clears throat> it takes, it would probably take a different direction, a better direction. But it looks like, as you said, a lot of these things are coming to fruition. Now, the thing is, with damage control, which is, it's probably going to be very comical. You know, I think you need Colston for it, <laughs> even though he's with, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, he would fit in perfectly with that. Also, too, you know, it's the heroes, too, that are involved as some of the employees. The only one they really introduce is Ant-Man. Other heroes they, they didn't introduce as of yet. So the perspective with the characters, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. You know, they could bring in, you know, Ant-Man and everything else here and there. Or maybe they use, they figure it out. They could throw you something. If you go back into, you know, the history of it and you look and you see there's certain heroes that were involved. I believe Hercules was also involved. Hercules, from the Marvel standpoint, was not introduced as of yet. So you got to deal with that. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. Definitely looking forward to seeing it. If it definitely comes about, remember, as Darrell B. always says, yeah, this is just talk. Once I say it, then I believe it. Anything can happen at this given point. You know, it's not been inked as of yet. It's not totally there. We'll see what happens. That's my perspective in respect to this. But I like all this branching out. I like all this branching out. And this is definitely one ABC can handle. You know, it's not something where it needs to go to Netflix, I don't think. You know? No, not, like for that. <laughs> not, not for this. Exactly. They can handle it. So it's, it's, looking, I, good. I just it's hope, looking good. I just hope that it's good. I mean, you just yeah. I don't want it to be something that's, I mean, first of all, I, in, in respect to someone as talented as Dwayne McDuffie, I wouldn't want it to be just something that they just came out of thin air and then they slap it against the wall and then it just falters. I mean, if they really approach it seriously and have some really sharp, funny, witty, geeky guys involved in it, it's got to be very funny, maybe a little off-color jokes. You know, it's got to really be in there. And, and again, you know, you might have to have a Scarlett Johansson uh, do a cameo or something to that effect Mm or uh, Jeremy Renner or some of these people you know, they, they've got to come in to kind of, you know, to really, in order for it to mesh properly and to be funny, they got to be on top of this thing. I, would, I wouldn't want it to come through when it's not, you know. I think and also, just, too, it has to, I think also, too, it has to be slightly, not heavily now, don't get me wrong, people, slightly campy, slightly for it to work, you know, based on that book, just slightly, slightly. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But it, it, it could be campy, but it's got to be. Listen, anything 
anything. <laughs> Listen, I, I'd almost want someone like Chris Rock to write this thing. It's got, I mean, it's got to be seriously. You need that. It's got to be somebody who's really funny. That way, you know where, where the lore and the mythology is there, but they got to get yeah. they got to be on top of this thing. Just don't put it up against the wall and then expect it to just work because you want to just push IPs through. And that that's the part that that scares me a little bit. You know, uh, quickly, and then we're gonna go to a groove cap. Uh, did you get a chance to check out? You know, we're talking about Marvel and ABC. Did you get a chance to check out the third season, first episode of Shield? Of course. What were your thoughts, man, about this thing? Well, I thought it was all right. I thought it was all right. I th- I think it started off a little bit better. And I Thank think you. it started off a little bit better, a little bit better than even last year's. Yeah. You know? I said okay. I didn't think when I, I didn't think when it was, I was possible. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. When I was watching it, I, I said, "Okay, good. All right, now the real series, TV series, are starting to return now. All these new startups, you better watch your back because next week, Tuesday, Flash starts. Good luck, all you new startups. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. thinking back yeah. when I was watching Agents of Shield. I was like, "Listen, this is not bad at all, man. It didn't, it didn't drop off. It, it got a little, little bit better, a little bit better here, a little bit better." You know, some, yeah. you know, some, you know, some cat. Um, you know, listen, I struggled through this thing, and I'm part of the Tea Party wing. Carol uh, <laughs> and myself, for the listening audience, you know, we use the terms like uh, Tea Party for die-hard comic fans, where we will tolerate a lot of goofy crap. Just to you know, just to see something that's comic book oriented, and I'll confess that if, if, even if it sucks, I'll muddle through with it because it's a comic book on TV. It's it, it it becomes more pleasurable when it's actually good. So I muddled through the first season, honestly, of Shield. Uh-huh. The second season, the second season got demonstrably better, but based on the first episode of the third season, it it felt. For the first time, it felt more, more seamless with the cinematic stuff going into TV. I thought that the the CGI was a little sharper. Um, that the danger element—it just seemed to be more of okay. This is actually happening in a Marvel context. Uh, they they put you know the agenda is afoot. So you know you're going to ha- you're going to see same gender couples and all that kind of thing, and you t- you you text message me on that. Hey, you know, it's interesting. It adds it adds a little bit. You know, it's not my thing, but I mean I appreciate the reality aspect. Anytime there's a, re- a reality uh, component put into fantasy, I appreciate it. To be honest with you, so you know we, we know that there's there's a there's a political thing attached to that. Whatever, as long as it, if it adds spice to to the to the to the uh, material, that's all right. Whatever, but um, I just thought that it was it was getting a little bit more. You know, even hell, even the 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 um, the, the aircraft that they were using, it still wasn't the helicarrier, but this new one, it came. Okay, this is coming off a lot more. I was like, am I imagining that this is? It seemed like I don't know if it's more money or better CGI, but it just seemed like it was. Just a better thing. And I think it has to do with what you just talked about with Flash coming up next week. Flash was good from the start because it embraced the comic book thing from the beginning. It seemed like 
it seemed like Shield was kind of fighting the comic book world before it got cooking. If you if you embrace it, it makes it better. Flash never shirked around with that. Um, now the first third first episode third season of Shield it you it just embraced that world. So I'm excited. I'm actually excited about Shield. Third time around, it's just better. All right, let's take a groove, take a, a quick break, Cap. Um, when we get back, just more disclosure. You know, Zack Snyder is bringing Watchmen to TV. Uh, I don't know what to think about that. Um, it may be good. <laughs> you know, all this stuff is like whatever. Also, we got to talk about the Oregon shooting, the tragedy out there, and how there seems to be a reticence of the, you know, DeRay Mekison from BLM, Black Lives Matter. He mistakenly identified the the shooter as a white person. Not the case. <laughs> so, not that it really matters. I mean, it's still these tragedies are what they are. Uh, it's more of an issue of scrutinizing and of gun control, which seems to be a bad term. We'll talk about it. Let's go to a groove. This is Robert Randolph, Soul Live. Robert Randolph with Soul Live, Crosstown Traffic, channeling Jimmy. We'll be right back.
Time constraints, folks. Give you the best of Urban Alternative Groove. That was Robert Randolph's and Soul Live, Crosstown Traffic, uh, the notable Jimi Hendrix cover. Uh, folks, this is the Grindhouse mashup. Of course, the uncanny. You know, I'm pretty sure you, you're missing his, uh, <laughs> his calm demeanor. Um, I believe he's doing something with mixed martial arts or uh, he, he's, he's involved in something else going, that's going, going on. So he had another engagement. I'm pretty sure he'll talk about it when he returns next week. Anyway, um, you know, before the break, I was hinting that we would discuss um, Zack Snyder's involvement with this HBO TV series forthcoming. Uh, it's in development, a Watchmen TV series. And I'll say this wholeheartedly. I thought that the Watchmen movie was probably one of the closest adaptations from comic to silver screen that I've ever seen. Um, it was first of all it was R-rated, which is almost a death knell for a comic book movie. I mean, I believe even Batman vs Superman, as serious as Snyder is affirming this will be, everybody affiliated with this movie is talking about how serious and how distinct it is from Marvel properties. But it still has a PG-13 rating. Zach's work with The Watchmen was R-rated, and for the the length, it was, you know, almost a three-hour movie, first of all. The director's cut is almost three hours. Um, and, and the book itself, is it's a very complex read. You know, it's Alan Moore's Watchmen, I believe Dave Gibbons, obviously, was the, was the, um, the artist on that work. It's old, now it's almost a 30-year-old property. It came out in the mid-'80s. And Watchmen was a complete deconstruction of the, of the superhero archetype. Um, the way we approach comic books now, rather matter-of-factly, with, with, with this seriousness and how we have a comic book culture and the, how the geeks and the blurds and, and all these different iterations of, of, of comic book people, how they take these properties and pull them apart and it, we're, just, we're, we're all in. It's because of Watchmen. I mean, there were a number, number of books, but Watchmen had a lot to do with where we are today with looking at com, comic book superheroes from a different perspective. I mean, that book and the movie, you know, some folks have, a, again, the Tea Party had a problem with the ending, you know, the fact that it ended differently, slightly different than the comic book. Uh, I thought it worked better cinematically the way that it ended, but that's just my own thing. Um, the fact that it dealt with this alternate Earth, this alternate Cold War, um, you know, you saw uh, in, the, in the book and in the movie, you saw flashbacks to Nixon and to JFK and, again, the Cold War and these heroes that were once Golden Age heroes and then coming back into, I think, into the 80s, which is where this, where this um, storyline takes place. I thought it was rather interesting. Now, the, the, the issue I, I have, though, is I don't know how or where this TV series is going to take place because are you going to deal with The Watchmen as a Golden Age story? How are you going to deal with it post the Watchmen movie? Because after that, I mean, it kind of, it kind of had a finalized kind of thing. I mean, the, the way it ended was, you know, there's no Rorschach. Rorschach was killed, unless you know 
he's brought back in some convoluted way. But he died pretty quickly. But this is the comic book world. People can come back to life. I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm going to watch it. I just hope this isn't the saturation point that we're, that we're talking about, where we're, we're really – I don't know. I, 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 and also, it would have to be pretty – it would have to be pretty – serious it can't be campy in this way i mean the book was never a campy book it was always serious serious thematically hence maybe the reason why it would work on an hbo just i'm just wondering where will it start based on how the film ended cap what are your thoughts about watchmen did you ever see the watchmen t- uh, movie i'm curious of course come on <laughs> I wouldn't be the captain without seeing that. Come on now. Okay. It, it was right. excellent. It was excellent. And I really don't care for Zack Snyder. And it was excellent. He nailed that. Smoking clock tells the right time twice a day. Exactly. <laughs> but you still need to watch his mouth. You still need to watch his mouth. Zack Snyder, you're talking reckless. You've been talking reckless. You understand? You could talk reckless after your Superman versus Batman movie drops and it does well. Then you could talk reckless. You talking? You you think you are Mayweather? <laughs> he talking like Mayweather. Man, come on, <laughs> stick to white man arrogance. You know, there's a difference. Black man tell you f you this that and the third and everything else. White guy says all the right things, but then he looks at you and he has his face all knotted up though, as he's saying Tom Brady style, Aaron Rodgers style. You understand? Stick to the white man arrogance. Then after Batman versus Superman drops, then you can go with the Mayweather type arrogance. Now, that being said, I think the platform is correct, all right, based on what you said, because it was a rated R movie. This cannot be on ABC, NBC, CBS. No, no, man, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It has to be on HBO or Netflix or Hula or maybe even an Amazon-type platform in order for it to give, in order for it to just give it a good shot, you know, based on the mythos. And I think they can, they can go any which way, they, any which way, but to play it on the safe side, they need to do it before actually the movie took place. They played on the safe side. That's playing it safe. You really can't go wrong. Now, if you try to do it after that, and you got to do all this other foolishness, or alternate re, uh, universe, you know, Horshack didn't really die, yada yada yada. Then you're gonna have the tea party come in and check you, because they will check you. Oh, what was this? What was that? There wasn't no book like that, and yada, 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 and all the other type stuff. But they could still do it. They could definitely still do it that way, too. But I would probably prefer it to start before, before all of that, and then it leads up to something like that where we can change the ending, give the Tea Party what they want. That's just me personally. I think it's excellent. I think it's excellent. As long as it's on HBO or Netflix or Hula or Amazon. If somehow or well, ABC wants to pick it up, I'm not even going to watch it because they're not going to be able to do it well. That's just my opinion. Back over to you, Afrodite. Yeah, you know, um, I will give this as far as, you know, credit to Snyder. He is a man. <laughs> you know, and I say that in a sense that, uh, you know, he had a, a movie that came out um, before Man of Steel, which wasn't a good lead-up to Man of Steel, incidentally. Sucker Punch. Sucker oh. Punch was a man's movie, okay. It visually was stunning. You know he knows how to make a, he knows he knows how to make a movie look a certain way. So he's definitely a visual guy. 
it was all about, you know, appealing to what, a male's reptilian nature with that sucker punch thing. But the movie was patently awful. Yep. But I still looked at it in its entirety because there were hot women prancing around. But that was just a that was a giveaway to allow them to, to, to express that because it was it didn't it was dumb, horrible. It was, it was horrible. Uh, so that's what you fear when you deal with a guy. I mean, a guy that could put together a watchman and and then and then turn around and come up with a hot garbage like Sucker Punch. You, you know, you get a. When he, as a matter of fact, I saw Sucker Punch before Man of Steel. I said, oh, I thought Man of Steel was going to be the worst. You know, and I still didn't really care for Man of Steel, but mostly because of the damage that was done in the end. I mean, you know, we we can go. I don't want to belabor that. But, um, you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, he's going to be connected to this TV series. So uh, the fact that it's on HBO, I think it might be appealing if it's, if it's in the 40s or the golden age. Matter of fact, I don't think we've ever actually seen something like that. Exactly. That, that might be more groundbreaking for it to be, you know, with maybe racial overtones, like Lynch. You know, they can go, any, they can go anywhere with it, being that it's HBO, and the times, you know, the, the the whole World War II thing, race, World War II, what 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 will soon become? What you know, when you the counter 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 culture movement is looming up ahead, and you keep this in the forties, that might be interesting. We'll see, we'll see. All right, well, we got to go into this tragedy of you know, for long time listeners, you know, the mashup. It's the top of the month, and we 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 mash up, we mix tape, we go from the pop to the pulp to the current events. So we have this horrific shooting in Oregon at this community college, uh, I believe Umpqua, 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 Umpqua Community College. Uh, we have a, a man, I think, who would be described as a man of color. Uh, he self-described as mixed race. I believe his mother is of African, African-American descent. Christopher Harper Mercer, 26 years of age, who shot, uh, I think at this point the tally is nine people, killed them fatally, and injured nine other folks. So you're talking about 18 people um, total. And he killed himself um, with a gun battle, in the midst of a gun battle with the um, police officers, responding police. Uh, You know, these things are happening with so much more frequency. And I will say this, I think I'm about to... I think I might have texted you this, Captain, that as much as I critique intraracial violence um, and what's happening as, as far as an urban setting where this was more of a rural setting, if this continues to happen, which it, it, it undoubtedly will, this may be, and I've said this before, this, this whole thing about black people and white people committing crimes differently now, this man is a man of color, but I'm not even looking at it from this perspective. I'm talking about the nature of this crime. Um, this might be analogous to how black folks refuse to deal with the intraracial, intraracial aspects of urban violence that mainstream slash white folks continue to ignore these mass killings in favor of the NRA in favor of gun ownership 
and of the Second Amendment that this might this might be analogous to it. That when when you, you and I and others who weigh in and say, "Hey, Black Lives Matter," sure, but the numbers are greater on the side of the intra intraracial stuff. When you start to bring in mass killings and this type of crime, which for the most part, excluding Mr. Mercer, excluding him, this is a white a, a white male oriented crime, and it's happening with more frequency. And the, I will say, as as a conservative, I'm not a, uh, a neocon. I'm not a, 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 a evangelical conservative. They seem to want to still continue to buy guns and yell yeehaw in spite of multiple deaths. There's a there's a a cognitive dissonance in this realm of crime and destruction that is analogous to the intraracial one. Maybe this is maybe this is getting to be the singularity point. I ask you I I ask you that, Captain. Do you think that well, you know, oftentimes we critique well white people do it too. The way black folks describe that is, well, black folks white folks kill each other kind of in an in a I don't like it's exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. But maybe this way the the, the ignoring of it might be the same now. I think the ignoring of it is the same. Just as blacks are ignoring or making excuses for intraracial crime, are whites making excuses for mass shootings? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the channel Sergio Mims. Sergio Mims says self-hate is one of the reasons why that, you know, black people do what they do to each other. Hate is hate. Let's understand what hate is. It's an emotion. Love. It's emotions, fear, emotions. Okay, there's a guy called the Captain. You might have heard of this guy that talks about 1950s, 1940s, 1960s studies. Studies are old and they've been replicated. Humans do their decision making in their limbic system. That means all of your decision making, whether you like it or not, is done emotionally. Then you rationalize what you have done emotionally. With logic Okay And here's the catch 22 The less emotional you are Here's the catch The better your decision making This is why a lot of people Are not really good to run business Business running it Just doing the business A lot of times Not all the time A lot of times Not all the time You have to be able to go Straight cut point And be ruthless Of course If you have a big company And you have to lay off 200 people and for you to sleep at night you have to be somewhat on the social path type of mentality some might say call you a psychopath you know nice people have a problem doing that because they're too emotional how is this person going to pay for their mortgage they just put their kids in school this one has a cop that's not for you 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 just go to work so that being said click something i say all the time to afro nerd click is analogous to being tribal. Tribal, which is not the same thing as racist, but it's analogous to being racist. You get very emotional when someone threatens your clique. If you're dealing with comic books, 
and someone outside the comic book click says, this is stupid, this is this, you start to have a war, war words. I've even seen people pushing over that. No fisticuffs, no fist no, but what are they talking about? It's because they got emotional, and that's what it leads to. So with humans, there is a tendency when you go black on black, it's less emotional. When you go white on white, it's less emotional. Black guy attacking a white guy, it facilitates a higher emotional response. And you see it more as a threat because you're tribal and somewhat, at times, racist. So do you see it more as a threat to one's being? That's how humans work on a whole, on a whole. Very few of you are really humanitarians, all right? Humanitarian aspect is BS. Now, let's explain. All deaths are not the same. That's a misnomer. I'm going to give you an example, all right? I could talk from experience because of what happened with me, all right? My father degraded over, let's say, a year and a half. Then he died, okay, fine. People got upset with me because I wasn't totally distraught. I said, I knew it was coming. All right, I prepared myself. It's still traumatic, but I prepared myself, okay? It's not the same thing if my father was walking around fine one day, and then all of a sudden he was chopped up, decapitated, tortured, murdered, raped, vivisected, and all these other two type of foolish stuff that happen to bodies from time to time. You could lose your mind over that situation, Okay? Maybe that's not hitting you home enough. Let me give you another example. You might say death is death, but death is not death. Mother walking with child, and then the child was hit by some car that ran off the road. And you look on TV and say, well, that's tragic. Okay. Same child snatched up, head chopped off, raped, burnt up, and everything else. How do you feel? It gets more of an emotional response. So all death is not the same. Now you begin to see my point of view, all right? As a misnomer, most people are not humanitarians, even though they claim that humanitarian. Oh, this life is that life, this life. No, it's not that case. It's where you get emotional. And white people have demonstrated they're more emotional at times when someone outside of their race targets one of their own. Black people have definitely shown. Not all, not all. Some of you get more emotional the other way, all right? But in totality, we were saying black people have a tendency to get more emotional when white people target someone in the black neighborhood. Now, white and black, it's not just them doing it. Asian people do it. Latin people do it. You see, we're not really a uni mind like the Borg as people. We are tribal by our nature. And click is analogous to being tribal. Tribal is analogous to being something entirely different now, being racist, but it's analogous too. So you have to understand these type of things when it comes to decision-making. Decisions are done emotionally, my friend, and then you use logic to rationalize the emotional decision that you make. So with the Black Lives Matter chanting and running around and black people in denial of all of that, what's happening intraracially, that's emotions right there. White people are doing the same thing. Asian people are doing the same thing. So this is a human condition. That's what you are as humans as per rule. There's going to be exceptions. There's going to be exceptions. But that's what the science says on it. And that's what I use when I do these diatribes. Not my work. 
not my work. These are, this is work that has been done in the past. They figured that out. So they know if they can control your emotions, they can control your decision-making. They control your actions. That's one. Of, this also ties in. Now, you might say I'm conflating things, but we conflate things here. This is why the media always likes to play a racial dynamic because that's going to get the most clicks. That's going to get the most response. Then they can charge the advertisers more money because based on these clicks, based on the viewership, white and black. It's a high emotional response. Black on black, to a certain extent, get a lesser. But a lot of people tune into that because that's how they see you. All right? So this is why the media likes to play on that role. All right? Even what the media puts out there in respect to the police officers, they're not painting the true picture because the police are tightening up everybody around America. You get it the worst, black man, of course. But that's not what the media shows. Media likes to show white cop, black person. Black person getting that white cop. That gets the most clicks because it gets the most emotion. And you make an emotional response. Then you use logic to try to rationalize what you do emotionally. So that's all what these white people are doing. They're in denial because there's not an emotional trigger with the white-on-white -white situation. And it's the same thing with the black people. Most of you, not all of you, but some of you, there's more of a trigger the other way. You know? And that's just what's happening here. That's just based on the science. It's not my science. You can go look that up. Emotional decision-making. That's what we do as human beings. That's what makes us so great at the same time. So it's a catch-22. This is also to tying this in to this same situation here, happening in Oregon, tying it in. We conflate things here. If you don't like it, too bad. We conflate things here. If you don't like it, it's all conflated. Men, as per rule, are better decision-makers than women. All right? Now, no, you can't say that. Due to the emotion. This doesn't mean that women cannot be good decision makers. Once they get a handle their emotions, they become very good and at times better than men. All right? Men have a tendency to be able to damper down their emotions and get better effective decision making. What do you think road rage is about? Road rage is all you got emotional, so you're running behind the person in the car because he cut you off. You could have let it go. No. You got emotional, so you're running the person now. You see? That's your decision. And then you use logic to rationalize why you why you chasing after this guy in your car. Well, he cut me off. That's the logic, you see? This is really not any logic at all. And that's what you do throughout your day. So tying this up going 360 degrees with Oregon, of course, white people are in denial because there's no emotional trigger. Or it's slightly, it's not as high to run them over their edge. And, of course, black people are totally in denial in what's happening with them in respect to the black-on-black -black crime. There you have it, Afro Nerd. Yeah, you know, um, and I just want to acknowledge Q Storm. He's, uh, this is something I, we never really spoke about. I, are, are we going to see? Uh, is the inner sanctum going to see the Martian? Q Storm says that. Uh, by the way, D Bert, you'll be interested to know that Donald Glover portrays a genius level blurred who literally saves the day in the Martian. I think there's two blurds in the Martian that Sergio Mims referenced. I don't think we actually made a decision on whether we're going to see it. Um, yeah, I'm aware of The Martian, and uh, that's one thing that would probably pull me to see it because of the, the blurred representation. I think I almost have to see it because of that, uh, although it, it comes off like an interstellar part, too. Um, uh, I see our friend Sergio was calling in less than five minutes left. Uh, <laughs> the timing in, with our with our supporters. Sergio? Yes, yes. Do you want to? Yes. Yes, it you is. You've got about four minutes, sir. 
Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I thought we were, right. you were going on to 7:30. Um, no, no. Real fast, you're, ta- you're talking about the the shootings in um, in Oregon. Oregon. Right. Don't forget, there's something else too. There's a particular. It's a, it's particularly an American character. We are a violent country. We've always been a violent country. Um, that is our nature. Where that comes from exactly, I don't know. But you know, as you know, I was in London like two weeks ago, and one of the things that always was striking is just how polite everybody is. Everybody's like exceedingly polite, and that's part of their culture, you know, their particular English culture. Our, we are more aggressive. We're more yeah, pushy. Well, that's the, that's supposed to be the mother country, though. <laughs> we're supposed to be well, like that. In theory. Well, I don't know the whole thing about mother country. I mean, we have developed, if we were really, you know, the son of England, then we would be more polite. We would be more like them. We are particularly American because of our history, our history of genocide and domination throughout, you know, the United States. We are more aggressive. We are more pushy. You know, we don't say, excuse me, please. We say, move, get out of my way. You know, um, well, you know that's sir, the way we you know, are. Sir, the thing, the thing, the thing I, I, I think is clear, you know, not all, but many black folk, and you have dealt with this, they will say things about the, the intraracial crime, stuff that's going on in your, in your backyard as being distinctly different than, quote, unquote, state-sponsored crime. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll separate it. But I'm thinking, and, and they'll say, well, black, white people do it too, but I'm thinking what's really connecting the black and white thing now is the denial of their ish, respectively. In other words, yeah, well, uh, look, you have you someone know, like Bush. Oh, let me finish my point. You have someone like Bush now uh, running, you know, running for President Bush, Jeb Bush, saying that, well, stuff happens. I mean, right. the, the folks out there reeling after such trash, you don't want to hear that. The folks at uh, Sandy Hook with those literal – in, you know, toddlers dying would not want to hear that. Just like when you know uh, the the young lawyer was killed at the at the Caribbean Day parade, his people don't don't want to hear. Well, you know, we got to deal with this state sponsored crime. I'm, I'm beginning to see because we conflate things here. I'm beginning to see there's a connection in the denial. Yeah, don't well, that's so? true. And well, and also I don't buy that. You know, um, well, look what the white people do. You know, it's just like, um, well, if the white man jumps off the cliff, you're going to jump off a cliff too? Um, that's an old, old line that, you know, gee, we think we're bad looking at white people. I, when I was a kid, I, we used to laugh when we used to read about heinous crimes committed by white people. You know, like a guy who will kill his whole family and walk away. Because we always just say, black people would never do that. That's a white thing. Well, we can't say that anymore. We can't say that anymore. We cannot. Just like that Delroy McKissick, whatever he did, he tweeted when he heard about the news in Oregon that this is an example of white violence. And, you know, he didn't even bother to look. He's a guy who's mixed race. who Yeah, think again. You know, yeah. Well, that, that's the, that's the folly of it. I guess my thing is when you're seeing when you're seeing white people or, or some whites who don't want to deal with with the scrutinizing. It's like we don't want to deal with scrutinizing, stop and frisk that whole thing. 
They don't want to deal with scrutinizing. These gun people don't want to deal with scrutinizing people with, with mental cases having guns. I mean, it's, it's the denial that I think is actually a, connection, a connecting thing where, you know, we can just excuse rampant death for politics. Do you see, my, do you see where I'm coming from? You have a political agenda attached to the NRA and people who are into gun culture that they will excuse massive death. You have black folks that are more concerned about state-sponsored, state-sponsored violent, violence than, than the reality of what really kills black people on a numbers level because it doesn't fit the political agenda. Both parties deal with politics versus the reality of death is death is death. Sergio, uh, we got to call it. We've already gone off air. Uh, you called in uh, late. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we'll I'm do sorry. it again. I, I on, thought the show we'll, went. We'll, that's all right. We'll, we'll, we will revisit this on Wednesday, folks. Surge, as always. Right. Let's go on out in the groove. This is. Let's go to Liquid Spirit by Gregory Porter. See you on Wednesday. It's been real. Clap your hands now. Let the damned water beat. There's some people down the way that's thirsty. So let the liquid spirit breathe. The people are thirsty because of man's unnatural hand. Watch what happens when the people catch wind. When the water hit the banks of that hard dry land. Liquid spirit. Liquid spirit. Liquid spirit. Liquid spirit. Liquid spirit. Now
There's some people down the way that's thirsty, so let the liquid spirit free. The people are thirsty because a man's unnatural hand. Watch what happens when the people catch wind, when the water hits the banks of that hard, dry land. 